The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Matthew. In chapter 24 and verse 14, the 14th verse in the 24th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. And this Gospel of the Kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. Now we are considering this great and momentous statement that is contained in this verse. And uh, the setting in which we are considering it is of very great importance. The setting is strangely similar to that in which our Lord uttered the words. He, you remember, spoke them at the end of his life. He'd left the temple for the last time. It was just before his death upon the cross on Calvary's hill. And as he was there for the last time in the temple. He made a prophecy about the coming destruction of the temple. And on being questioned by his disciples, who seemed to query this because these buildings were such magnificent and solid buildings, they were rather amazed that he could speak so easily and lightly, apparently, about the destruction of such buildings. They raised the question again by asking him to look at them. And again he repeats, this, that it is to be destroyed. Not one stone shall be left upon another. And then they proceed to ask him, when are these things to take place? When art thou coming, they say, and when will the end of the world come? And what our Lord does in this chapter is to answer those questions. And we have seen that it's a prophecy of destruction and of doom. The temple is to be destroyed. Jerusalem is to be destroyed. And as you know, they were destroyed in A.D. 70, literally and exactly as he had prophesied. But this chapter doesn't stop merely at that destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Our Lord goes on and blends with this a preview of history to the very end of time. It's difficult at points to tell which exactly he is dealing with in this chapter. That need be of no concern to us at all, because the big principles stand out so plainly and so clearly. What happened in A.D. 70 is just a foreshadowing of what is going to happen to the whole world at the end. In other words, our Lord pronounces that the whole world that is not in the true and the right relationship to God is under judgment and shall be destroyed. That is his own prophecy. It isn't mine. He doesn't promise a world that's going to get better and better as the result of men and philosophies and teachings and education. Far from it. He promises wars and rumors of wars. Indeed, he promises a world very much like our world this evening. And he said all that, you remember, nearly 2,000 years ago. That's our Lord's preview of history. But here in the midst of this prophecy of such judgment and doom 
and disaster to sinful mankind, there comes this word, this blessed word, this promise and this other prophecy. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Now, this is what it means, as we've been seeing on several Sunday evenings. That prophecy of doom is not the end, that's not all. There is this good news. What is it? Ah, uh, the good news is that God is forming a new kingdom. That he is separating people out of that world and its doom into a new kingdom. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven. He began doing it in the Old Testament. But now he's doing it much more definitely and explicitly. There is no need for everybody to be involved in that final judgment and doom and disaster that is going to overtake the world. No, no, there is a way out. There is a new kingdom. This kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of people who are in the right relationship to God. That's the good news. This good news of the kingdom. Very well then, we've seen this. That the most urgent question for us this evening is, how can one enter into that kingdom? That, I say, is the real question. You and I are again in a time of crisis. Oh, don't misunderstand me. I'm not prophesying that this is the end of the world. It may be, you know. I don't know. We are told that we are not to be concerned about times and seasons. There are some people who are. And whenever they come to this 24th chapter of Matthew, they work it all out. They can tell you exactly when the end is coming. I cannot. And our Lord says that even he didn't know, that only God knows. I say we don't know, and because we don't know, it makes the matter much more urgent. There are scientists who are saying that the end of the world is very near, not because they believe in God nor in the Lord Jesus Christ, but because they see the possibilities of atomic power. Very well, I say, we are in this terrible position of uncertainty, we are told explicitly that the world that is in sin is going to be doomed and destroyed eternally. But here I say is a promise, if we only belong to this other kingdom, we need have no fear of the judgment nor of the end. We can be safe. I say, therefore, the vital question is, how can we enter into this kingdom? And the answer is, the key to the whole question is in the person of the very one who was speaking at this time. Jesus of Nazareth. This person who can thus prophesy exactly the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. This person whose claims we considered last Sunday night and which drive us to one conclusion. This is the Son of God. He is the key to it all. And we've seen further that the key to it is not only his person, we must be clear about that, we must recognize that this is the Son of God. But that isn't enough. Is it his teaching then, says someone? Has he come into the world to give us a teaching which if we but follow it will admit us into the kingdom? We have seen likewise that it isn't that also. 
He and he alone can admit us into this kingdom in which we are safe. How does he do it? Well, we worked it out last Sunday night in general in this way. He does it by coming into the world, his incarnation. He does it by his life of obedience. He does it by conquering Satan. He does it by dying on the cross. He does it by being buried. He does it by rising again and by ascending. That is how he does it. He does it, if I may borrow a phrase, from the second chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. By what are there called the wonderful works of God. Salvation is the result of God's action. A whole series of acts and actions. Not by teaching alone, but by what God has done. And supremely by what God has done in the person of his only begotten Son. Very well. But now we arrive at this position, therefore. You say, says someone, that he admits us into that kingdom by doing all those things you've just been enumerating. But why did he do them all? Why didn't he give us a teaching? Why didn't he do it in some other way? Why do you say that it is only because of what he has done that we are admitted into the kingdom? And the answer I give in general at this point by putting it like this. That was the only way whereby the door of entry into the kingdom of God could be opened for any man. I'm going to borrow a phrase from the tedium that we sometimes sing together. It tells us that after he had suffered the pains of death, he opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. That's the answer. These things which he has done are the only way whereby the kingdom of heaven could be opened to anybody. And the kingdom of heaven is only open to all who are believers. Now this is the very center and nerve, the most essential point about this good news of the kingdom of God. That's the good news of the kingdom. That's the message that she says is going to be preached in the whole world for a witness unto all nations. That there is a way for men to enter into the kingdom of God. And it is as the result of what he has done to open the kingdom of heaven for all believers. Well, now, that's what I want to consider with you this evening. And again, I do it and I come back to it because more and more are we being reminded that there is nothing that is so denied by men and nothing which is more frequently rejected by men than just this very thing. Men still pay attention to his teaching. Men still pull, put all their emphasis Upon his example. And they're not interested in the incarnation, they say. They're not interested in his miracles. They're not interested in his atoning death upon the cross. They don't believe that he rose literally in the body from the grave. They deny all these things. It's the teaching alone they're interested in. And yet I'm here to point out once more. That it is by these things which he has done for us that he has opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. 
I don't want to be topical, but uh, I do quote something to you which will just help to focus attention on this point that I'm making. I'm trying to show you how men and women are outside the kingdom because they think that he came to teach rather than that he came to do things and to achieve things for us. Let me give you one illustration of what I mean. I happened to be listening to the wireless uh, at tea time last Friday. I saw that uh, there was a re-repeat of an interview that had been held with the most distinguished men and public servant, Lord Beveridge. And after a while they asked him a question about religion. And this is what he said. He said that he'd never been baptized. And then he went on to say this. He said, my father, you know, he said, was the greatest Christian who's ever lived. But of course, he said, he was a complete unbeliever. I don't quite know, you know, whether we should laugh at that or cry. I understand why some of you laughed. But you know, it is something that ought to reduce us to weeping and to tears. That such an able and a gifted man should be capable of uttering such folly. My father was the greatest Christian that's ever lived. And yet he was a complete unbeliever. You see, what he means is this. He, mean, he means that his father is a very, was a very good man. And that in his, in his opinion, his father approximated more closely to the ethical, moral teaching of the Sermon on the Mount and the New Testament than any man he's ever known. That is what makes a Christian, according to him. But of course, he says, as regards your creeds, as regards believing in the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ and the incarnation and the two natures in one person and the atoning death and the resurrection, he didn't believe a thing. He denied it all. The greatest Christian who's ever lived and yet, of course, a complete unbeliever. Now, my dear friends, I am only mentioning that because, you see, it's such a perfect illustration of the point I'm dealing with this very night. It is, I say, by the things that he did that he's opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. Let me prove it to you. Take this other view. Can't you see that a man who says a thing like that is not arriving at his definition of Christianity from the Bible at all. It's simply his own notion as to what Christianity is. Now, here is the question. What is a Christian? That's the question. Well, I think everybody must agree that the only way in which we can really decide what a Christian is is to come to this book which we call the Bible. What other authority have we on this question save this book? I think everybody must agree with that. And this is the astonishing thing which we find, that thus distinguished and learned and exceptionally able men, with the Bible open before them, can arrive at a definition of a Christian that is the exact opposite of that which is taught in the Scriptures. Now, 
This is something they'd never do in any other realm or any other department. Give them any other textbook and they read it and they'll give you a true account of its message. But when they come to the Bible, there's only one explanation of what they do. It is, as Paul says, that they are blinded by the God of this world. And though they are giant intellects, they behave as fools. Now, this isn't merely assertion. I want to prove this to you. I say that a man who can make such a statement is completely misinterpreting the Old Testament and the New. I haven't time to take you through the evidence. Let me just give you some illustrations. The very first mention that is made of a promise and a gospel is in Genesis 3.15. What is it? Here is man, he's just fallen. He's become the slave of the devil. And what does God say to him? He says, now then there's going to be enmity between the seed of the devil and the seed of the woman. And yet he gives his gracious promise. Here it is. The seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. That's the first bit of gospel in the Bible. You see, it isn't this. Ah, well, here you are, you've sinned and you've got yourself into trouble and it's going to be a great fight between you and the devil, but I'm going to give you teaching and if you only follow that teaching and if you only imitate an example, you'll be saved and you'll be right with me. Not at all. The thing is going to be done by the seed of the woman who is going to bruise the serpent's head and finally destroy him. And in doing it, his own heel is going to be wounded. Go on with your Bible and what you find everywhere there is the promise of the coming of a Messiah, a Deliverer. It's the universal message. Everything is pointing forward to some great Shiloh that's going to come. There is going to be a, a, a king who will come out to the seed and the house of David. There is going to be a lion out of the tribe of Judah. It's all pointing to some person who's going to come and who's going to achieve a victory and set his people free. What do you imagine is the meaning of all we are told in some of the early books of the Bible about burnt offerings and sacrifices and all the bloodshedding and the ceremonial which went on in the tabernacle and afterwards in the temple? Why is a lamb killed every morning and every evening? What's the meaning of the paschal lamb? Oh, I could take you through it all again. What's it all doing? Well, it's pointing forward to somebody who's coming. Who is going to make a great sacrifice? It's all prophecy. It's pointing forward. And when you come to the works of the major prophets and the minor prophets, you really got the same thing. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Why? Is it because you're going to be given a teaching which is going to relieve you and deliver you because you carry it out? Not at all. Somebody's going to come. And he's so great that he needs a forerunner to go before him and to prepare the way. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and high hill shall be made low. Make straight the highway of your God. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. God's going to do something. That's the message. Universally. And then when you come to the New Testament itself... Take the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he teach? This is his message. The Son of Man, he says, is not come to be ministered unto, but to minister. And to give his life a ransom for many. That's why he's come. 
Listen to him again. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. He doesn't say, you see, that if you only take his ethical teaching and imitate him and put him into practice, that you'll be saved. No, no, he must be lifted up as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, that whosoever looketh at him and believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Listen to him again. I am the good shepherd. What does the good shepherd do? Is he the greatest teacher? Is he going to give us a word which we've only got to put into practice to save our souls? No, no. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. That's what makes him the good shepherd in contradistinction to the other, the hireling shepherd. He, see, he sees the wolf cometh and coming and he fleeth. But the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep in order that he may save them. And then when you go on to the last chapter of Luke's gospel, you find our Lord even speaking after his death and burial and after his resurrection. And what is his teaching? His teaching is this. And here he is speaking as the risen Lord. He's amazed that they hadn't understood the scriptures. He said, you ought to have understood them. He opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And he said unto them, thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And yet I'm told that a man can be the greatest Christian that the world has ever known who's a complete unbeliever in all these things. I ask in the name of common sense and reason and clear logical thinking, where do they get their definition from? They don't get it in the Old Testament. They don't get it from Jesus of Nazareth. Neither do they get it from the apostles in all their teaching. Work your way through the book of the Acts of the Apostles and you will find that everywhere they preach him as crucified. He was delivered, says Peter, in that first great sermon on the day of Pentecost according to the predeterminate knowledge and predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Listen to Paul, he says the same thing. It is God who sent him to do this. That's their universal message. Paul, in saying goodbye to the elders of Ephesus, uses this extraordinary phrase about the church, which he hath purchased with his own blood. And yet they disbelieve all this. They deny it all. It's the teaching of Jesus. No, no, says Paul to the Corinthians. I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. I delivered unto you, first of all, he says again in the 15th chapter, that which was also delivered unto me, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that he was buried according to the Scripture, and that he was raised again the third day according to the Scripture. That's what he preached. That's what he tells us everywhere. 
who gave himself for us, that he might deliver us from this present evil world. He, he said, was made a curse for us. Listen to him writing to the Ephesians, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who hath made both one and reconciled them by the blood and the death of his cross. In Ephesians 2, same in Colossians 1. Did you notice it there in that second chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews? Same thing. He was made a little lower than the angels. What for? That he might teach us? No, no. That he might taste death for every man for the suffering of death. Knowing this, says the apostle Peter, that ye were redeemed from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, not with gold or silver or such things, but by the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who, he says in chapter 2, his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. Yes, he says in chapter 3, verse 18, that he gave himself for us, that he might bring us to God. Ask the apostle John, and you'll find he says the same thing. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin and all unrighteousness. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Go on to the book of Revelation, and what you find, it's the same story. Unto him that loved us, and washed us in his own blood. I don't apologize for having kept you with these lengthy quotations. I'm driven to do this because of the folly which is spoken. The idea that a man can make himself a Christian. And that by reading the teaching of Christ and following his example, he can make himself a Christian, is a denial of the whole Bible from beginning to end. And yet men of intelligence are still saying it. No, no, you don't enter the kingdom of God in that way. There is only one way of entry. It is by suffering the pangs and the agonies of death that he has opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. It is an utter, complete travesty of the New Testament and the Old Testament teaching. It is pure imagination. It is speaking as if this book had never been written. It is denying the very words of Jesus Christ himself. And added to that, didn't we see together a fortnight ago that there is nothing that so condemns us as the teaching of Jesus Christ. What is his teaching? I've got to be poor in spirit. I've got to mourn. I've got to be conscious of my sin. I've got to be meek and merciful. I've got to hunger and thirst after righteousness. I've got to become as a little child, feeling my utter helplessness. I've got to be born again. How utterly monstrous and ridiculous to say that a man can follow the teaching of Jesus and deny the facts about him. And it is exactly the same about following his example. Do you think you can follow the example of Jesus Christ? 
Well, go back and read the accounts of his life. Read what he taught and stood for and what he practiced. I say there is nothing that so damns a man as the imitation of Christ. I can't come up to my own satisfaction and standard. Leave alone, follow him and imitate his example. Thank God that isn't Christianity. Otherwise I'm damned and lost and so is every one of you. No, no. It is by doing what he's done that he has opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. What's it mean, says someone? Well, let me put it to you. Forget all about the misunderstanding. Let's look at it positively. The question somebody asks me is, yes, you've talked about the incarnation, but why did the Son of God have to come into the world? Why couldn't he save us without actually coming into the world and being born as a baby in Bethlehem and growing up as a little boy and acting for all those years as a carpenter? Why must all this have taken place, these facts to which you're calling our attention? And you know, the answer is very simple according to the teaching of the Bible. It's this. He had to do all that because the only way to save anybody was to start a new humanity. To start a new human race. You see, this was the problem. The whole of the human race was condemned in Adam. The first man, the first Adam. He was the whole of humanity. He was the representative of the whole of humanity. God addressed him. God made a contract, a covenant with him. He represents the whole of humanity. But he fell, he sinned, and punishment came down upon him. And the whole race has fallen in Adam. Whether you like it or not, that's the truth. And that's why every child born into this world is born in sin and immediately proceeds to sin. We are all members of Adam's fallen race. That's the teaching of the fifth chapter of the epistle to the Romans. It's the teaching of the first fifteenth cha chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians. As in Adam, all died. As by the one man sin entered into the world and death by sin because all men have sinned. That's it. That is the position of the whole race and that is the only explanation of the state of the world tonight. Why is it that the world is as it is in spite of all our educational efforts and all our social efforts, in spite of all our beverage schemes and all the state schemes that have emanated from them, our welfare state of which he is rightly the architect? Give him full credit for it all. But the question is, why in spite of all this is mankind as it is? Is the world as it is? And there's only one answer. It is because it's all fallen. We have all fallen in Adam. And the only way of saving any one of us is that there should be a new humanity. Somebody must stand before God and give satisfaction. We need another Adam. 
We need another representative. We need another head. Another man who can stand for us. Even as the first caused our fall. Another who can raise us up and save us. And as John Henry Newman put it in the hymn we last sang. And though he became a Roman Catholic and we disagree with so much of his doctrine, here he's giving us the very heart of the matter. He saw it. He believed it. Oh, loving wisdom of our God. When all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the conflict came. Nobody else could do it. Read your Old Testament and you'll see their failure. Look at them, patriarch after patriarch, king after king, prophet after prophet. The devil defeats them all. Not one of them can save himself or deliver anybody else. Not one of them is big enough and strong enough to represent us and to set us free. We need another Adam, a new start, a new humanity. Someone to represent us in the presence of God and to redeem us. And the Son of God came into the world in order to do that very thing. No one else could do it. There was none other good enough. So he came into the world. Yes, and this is the key, you see, to the whole of his activity. But why did he come into the world, do you say? And if he did indeed come into the world, why didn't he suddenly appear in it? Why did he have to be born of the virgin's womb? Why that? Ah, the explanation is simple. Did you notice it there in the second chapter of that epistle to the Hebrews? Here it is. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham, the nature of man. Why was he born a babe in Bethlehem, I'll tell you. As it was by men that sin entered into the world, and death by sin... So it is also only by a man that we can be represented and redeemed. God has made humanity. And God is out to save humanity. Well, it's only a member of humanity you can save. So the Son of God had to leave the courts of heaven. He who had existed in the form of God now appears in the form of man. He's got to be made a man. So the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He must be a man, otherwise he can't represent men as the children are of flesh and blood. He must have flesh and blood. So the incarnation was an absolute necessity. It isn't teaching we need, it's a representative, another Adam. So he takes on human nature, flesh and blood, hence your incarnation. This is the teaching of the Bible. I say it with reverence. The Son of God couldn't have saved us unless he had become a man, unless he had taken human nature unto him. The representative must be a man. Otherwise, can't you see it? The devil would be able to taunt God to all eternity, and he'd say this, You made man. Yes, but you made him in such a way that I got him down. 
and you've had to send your own son. A man couldn't put things right. Only your own son could do it. God answers him in the incarnation. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He became truly man and he stands as the head of a new humanity. And so having come in that way, everything he proceeded to do, he did as our representative. He wasn't acting for himself, he was acting for us. He has been made flesh that he might stand as our representative before God. As Adam had done, the first Adam at the beginning. A second Adam, yes, a last Adam. There'll never be another. He's the last. He's done it. There is no need for another. The first man, Adam, the second man is the Lord from heaven. Now then, he has done everything he's done, I say, as our representative. What has he done? He has done all the things that we should have done, the things that are essential, before any one of us can stand in the presence of God and enter into God's kingdom and be safe. What are they? Here's the first. He has honored God's holy law and given a perfect obedience to it. God doesn't give his laws, you know, as a pastime. When God gives laws, he means them to be carried out and to be obeyed. And God gave his laws to men, and men failed. And I say there is no reconciliation to God until the law is kept and the law is honored. So the Son of God came, and he was made of a woman, and he was made under the law to redeem them that are under the law. He gave a perfect, absolute obedience to God's holy law. He had no need to do it for himself. He did it for us. He has kept God's law for us who believe in him. What else? Well, it was equally necessary that he should be able to resist and to conquer Satan. The first men had failed completely to do that. Satan found him very easy play indeed. He listened to Satan and he fell. And no man can enter into that kingdom unless Satan be conquered because he stands there preventing our entry. He gets us down. He misleads us. He deludes us by guile as he duped Eve and Adam. So he has done with all the progeny of Adam and Eve. And before we can enter that kingdom, Satan must be resisted and conquered. And the Son of God came and he did it. Tempted forty days and forty nights in the wilderness, he routed him completely. The strong man armed has been overpowered and overmastered. And his armor in which he trusted has been taken from him. So he has removed that obstacle. And then we come to the grand climax of it all. Our ultimate problem is the problem of the guilt of sin. Of no interest to the clever of this world. But of terrible and appalling interest to God. 
These clever people, they never talk about the guilt of sin. They gloss over their failures and their deficiencies and their defects and all the wrong things they've ever done. They never consider the question of guilt. They only talk about their goodness and about the wonderful things they do. But God has a record. He has books. The guilt of sin. And the Son of God came into this world and took unto him human nature in order that in the flesh he might deal with this problem of sin. How did he do it? Well, he began doing it, you know, at his baptism. He went to John the Baptist one day who was preaching a baptism of repentance for a remission of sins. And here goes Jesus of Nazareth to John and asks to be baptized of him. And John at once stands back and said, no, no. He said, I ought to be baptized of you. you I don't baptize you. You ought to be baptizing me. Suffer it to be so now, said our Lord. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. What does he mean? Oh, he is taking... He is placed by our side. He has no sin to repent of. He has no guilt, but he's putting himself in our place. He's identifying himself with our sin. He puts himself into the place of repentance as our representative, not for himself at all. But that was only the beginning of it. Oh... The real work was done upon the cross where he died. Why? What was happening there? Oh, let me put it like this. It's a theme that could keep us endlessly. God has pronounced a judgment upon sin. And the judgment of sin is death. And every pronouncement of God must be carried out. God is just. God has no dealings with sin. He cannot. God in his righteousness and his holiness hates sin. And he has announced that the punishment of sin is death. It's God's own word. It isn't mine. And so before any one of us can enter into that kingdom, something has got to be done about the guilt of sin and this punishment that is pronounced on it, which is death. And our Lord realized that, you see. And that is why in the Garden of Gethsemane you can see him sweating drops of blood in an agony. What's the matter? Well, the matter is this. He turns to his father and he says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass by. What's he shrinking from? Is it mere death? No, no. It is this separation from his father that is involved in death and the punishment of sin that he's shrinking from. And so he says, if it be possible, let this cup pass by. Nevertheless, not my will, but as thou wilt. And on he went unto the cross. And what was happening on the cross, it was this. God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him who his own self bore our sins 
in his own body on the tree. By his stripes we are healed. He has made his soul an offering for sin. God hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the whole world. That, my dear friend, is the good news of the kingdom. He was delivered for our offenses. He has stood in our place. He has died our death. He has received our punishment. He was our representative. And upon him has descended the chastisement of God. It was for us. He was buried. It was for us. He rose again. Delivered for our offenses, raised again for our justification. The law fully satisfied, death vanquished, the grave conquered. He rises again as our representative and is exalted seated at the right hand of God, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now that, I say, is the history and the explanation of what he did. Why had he to come into the world and do all this, says someone? I've answered the question. We needed a new representative in every one of those respects. He has come. He has represented us in everything he did. He was made man and suffered and tasted death as man that he might represent all who believe in him. And thus, he, I say, he has opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. It is only those who believe in him and who believe in what he has done who are admitted into this kingdom. Not his teaching, his acts, taking human nature, born as a babe, fighting with Satan, Agonizing in the garden, dying upon the cross, it is there rising again to justify us. It is there he opens the door of the kingdom to all believers. It is because of what he has done for us on our behalf. And because he has done it, we can be forgiven and reconciled to God. We can be clothed with his righteousness. We can become the children of God. We can have new life, a new nature, a new start. The Holy Spirit will dwell within us as he dwelt in him. That is the gospel. 
That is the gospel of the kingdom, this good news of the kingdom that is to be preached to all nations for a testimony and unto all people. What's it mean? It means this. That immediately we believe in him and trust to him and what he has done on our behalf. We can be delivered from this present doomed, damned world. We can be delivered from the power of sin. We can be delivered from the condemnation of God's holy law. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. We can lose the fear of death and the grave. We can smile at even the thought of the judgment. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. When the end comes, when doom is pronounced and the world is reeling to eternal damnation and destruction, we shall be safe and shining in the kingdom of God and of glory and everlastingly secure. That is the good news of the kingdom. This gospel of the kingdom shall be heralded, shall be preached. To whom? In all the world for a witness unto all nations. To whom are you saying, says someone, that we can be forgiven and reconciled to God and be born again and become the children of God and have the Holy Spirit in us and be enabled to resist sin and the world and Satan and smile in the face of death and be eternally secure. To whom are you offering that? Are you offering it to good men? Are you offering it to planners? Are you offering it to philosophers? Are you offering it to men who have never sinned? Are you offering it to men who are so moral that they feel that they can even satisfy God? No, no, I'm not. I am saying with the Lord Jesus Christ that such people, like the Pharisees of old, will be without the kingdom to all eternity. To whom am I preaching it? I am preaching it to those who are without strength. I am preaching it to those who are ungodly. I am preaching it to those who are sinners. I am preaching it to those who are enemies of God. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, those are the people to whom I'm preaching, not the good, not the righteous, they that are all have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, these good, self-satisfied, egocentric men and women. No, no, not to them. I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. The good news is to those who are failures, to those who feel they have no strength, to those who are sinners and who know it, to those who hate themselves and the sin they've committed, to those who are weak and helpless and vile and black 
and damned. It is to them I preach it. And to them just as they are. I don't ask them to improve. I don't ask them to reform. I don't ask them to take up something. No, no. There's nothing for them to do. Why? Because he has done it all. He came, the last Adam, the second man, to be our representative. And he has done it all. He's kept the law. He is righteous. He's conquered Satan. He's paid the price of sin. He's borne its uttermost penalty. He's conquered death and the grave. He's done it all. He's risen again to stand in the presence of God for us. There is nothing for you to do. Because he has done it all. This, thank God, is the gospel of the kingdom. The free grace of God to whosoever believeth. Nothing more. You needn't wait to rid your soul of any dark spot or blot. You needn't resolve anything. If you don't come as you are now, you'll never come at all. What I mean by that is this. That whenever you come, you've got to come empty-handed. You've got to come in your vileness, in your sin, in your helplessness. If you plead anything, you'll be rejected. Not the righteous. Sinners Jesus came to save. The gospel of the kingdom is the message that tells us that the last Adam has conquered every enemy, has removed every obstacle, and has opened the kingdom of heaven To all believers, he asks of us nothing but repentance, acknowledgement of sin and shame and failure, and a simple looking to him and trusting entirely and exclusively to what he has done. On our behalf, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Have you heard the good news of the kingdom? Have you seen it to be the most thrilling good news that can ever be heard? That you can be saved freely by the grace of God in Jesus Christ without money, without price, without anything except a realization of your need and helplessness. And your realization of what the Son of God, your representative, has done for you. Have you heard it? Have you believed it? If you have, you are in the kingdom. You are everlastingly safe. If you haven't, 
You're still in the world. And if you remain there, you will be involved in its final doom and disaster and catastrophe. Oh, I beseech you. Listen to the good news. Free salvation for the vilest of sinners. Here and now. Amen.